Any thoughts or reflections or questions? You told that story about uh, Buddha Dasa and the chicken and the chicken and the mosquito. Uh-huh. And I don't know. I just I just kind of threw it out there. I'm like, well, you know, what if someone has a pet lizard and they want to feed it some crickets? You want to provide food for your uh, friendly little lizard. You're not sure whether it's going to eat them or it's not your intention to kill them yourself. Uh, but uh, is that you know? Would you be breaking your sila if you? Uh, are you getting reborn as a lizard? You get reborn. <laughs> there you go. Undoubtedly. <laughs> No, I think sila, sila is a reflective thing rather than, I, I think we get kind of Christian ideas of morality, like this is sinful, carte blanche kind of thing, and Buddhist ideas of reflection. So, and then monks are asked to give the kind of papal decree about is this bad karma, you know, so, so we just, we operate at, at, at a kind of different level, so... It, you know, if you think what your mind is, like if, if you didn't raise the, you now just reflecting, right, if I didn't, if I didn't have a pet lizard, I'd look, I could look at that cricket as quite a beautiful fellow, right? right? Yeah. So my attitude to the cricket would be different, say, oh, what a, a crickets make a nice sound in August and so on. Yeah. So now, because I have this pet lizard, my attitude to crickets is, is somewhat different. I'm now the hunter, right? Yeah. And the cricket is the hunted. Now, I might think it's quite innocuous, but I am putting into my mind a whole different relationship to the cricket than I had before. Yeah. And that's karma. You know, whether you get, you know, whether it's venal sin and all that, but it's certainly, if you look at karma at at the ways that we affect the mind in what we do, um, it's different than buying him like shredded cricket in a can or something, right? Because <laughs> even then, like if you bought shredded cricket in a can, your mind would have, you know, it wouldn't have that sense of hunting. Right. So it wouldn't even be about like vegan cricket food or even, what are we, we're doing lizards. <laughs> vegan lizard food it wasn't about it's it's about what the mind is doing at that time and and you can see you're, you're you know you'd get oh cricket great i'm gonna kill him oh, i'm gonna catch him i won't kill him i'll catch him live but still it's like hunting so it, it, it would have an effect and then the, the, i think where we get into trouble is then we try to project that as future lives and you know am i going to get arthritis because of that or a man or stuff like that but that we don't really know yeah but it has effect on the mind. Yeah. I think with pets in general, what happens is that the, the difficulty is when they die, like, like cats and dogs, is the euthanasia bit. Because everyone gets to that point where, um, what am I going to do when this animal's in, in deep pain? Yeah. And it's ambiguous. It's really, really ambiguous. And, and a normal state of affairs, you just let the cat go into the garden, the cat would die. Now we've got ways of maintaining cat consciousness for long, long periods of time. People get very attached to the animal, treat it for cancer, all manner of things, and it gets, it gets very, very complicated. And it's not, not so much about making a... Actually, I think Ajahn Chah was asked that about farming. And, the, and the, we had open hole. The first year he came, 
If I had it right, someone was was raising table vegetables for the London market. This is in England. And they said, well, I'm, I'm doing a lot of good, but I also have to spray for insects. And at one point, I wouldn't back down. He said, well, still, and there's a karmic result of killing insects. Yeah. And the man said, yeah, but you eat the vegetables. Yeah, he says, yeah, but I don't grow them. He said he was really, he wouldn't, he would sway from that. And if you think in terms of, of mind then, you know, maybe the farmer's mind isn't all that bothered. You know, he just sprays the crop, gets rid of the aphids or the whatever it is. Then you get the question, well, is it really effect on his mind? And then you get those difficult questions, what is the effect karmically in terms of how things are inherited in the future? Or, and we don't know. We don't know that. And that's where I always get kind of... Just don't don't know beats me. I think I heard uh, secondhand that Ajahn Tan uh, spoke about the uh, hurricanes that hit Thailand uh-huh. some years back, and I guess his take on on it was well, it you know it, where the greatest loss of life was was these fisher. Fisher, fisher people, fisher people communities, uh-huh. and this tape was said. Well, you know, for generations they've been killing fish, and now because of the bad karma, they've been making. Uh, you know. yeah, that's a very Thai way of thinking, tit for tat. Yeah, I can't go there myself. Yeah. I, I just, my mind just says it's very simplistic somehow. Mm-hmm. For like the the Fukushima. You know, the tsunami comes through there. Second World War is at the result of Japan. You know, but so my mind, I think I teach you more individually. On the grander level, I don't know. I don't know how it works, and, and, and I'm okay not to know. So I just take it as a way of trying to develop upeka. So rather than have some kind of definite answer about why I've got psoriasis or why am I opaque or way I broke my leg yesterday or something like that. Um, I, I reflect more. I'm the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama. Which if I do it, if I do it well, then whatever comes to me, I have a way of acceptance. And I also have a way of being careful. And that, that gives me a, a kind of right motivation in the present moment. Rather than this thing, you try to figure this all out. Because to me, it's one of those sort of unanswerable questions that you wouldn't go for, right? You said, if you try to figure out why this moment is the way it is, you go crazy. It's too complicated. So I never, I've never been inspired by those kind of simplistic answers. To me, they're simplistic. But that's when, when Buddhism is used as a doctrine rather than as a tool for liberation. Like, the question in, in, in all religions, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a philosophical name for it, but why do bad things happen to good people, and why do good things happen to bad people? That's always the question of God, Allah, karma, whatever, right? And so Buddhism uses karma in that way. But then we don't, we don't use it as a... I just use it as a um, working hypothesis, that's all. If I use that as a working hypothesis, it helps me to be at peace with the way things are. Fine, acceptance. If you then ask me to translate that into an absolute truth and have these, then I, then I just kind of, 
I get kind of lost, really. I don't know. I don't really know at all. I don't know how it works. And to me, that's quite important when you use Buddhism as a kind of doctrine to try to pen, pin everything down, and you're using it for your own practice to somehow bring forth wholesome and skillful states of mind. If those reflections on karma brought forth, you know, kind of sense of, you know, oh, I've done so many bad things in the past lives and probably just, you know, I'm meant to suffer and, you know, that's just ego. But if I, if I use it to keep a sense of acceptance, because it's quite hard sometimes. So sometimes, like, monks will have strange illnesses. Uh, when they ordain. It's not uncommon that a monk comes into the order fairly healthy because we, we're pretty careful about who comes into the order. A year later, they got some kind of chronic disease. Guts are gone or bones are gone or something. And, yeah, what's that about? And then we go through all kinds of we do all the medical stuff. Some of it gets healed, some of it doesn't. And then we say, come on. Now I can't say that absolutely that you know that it has, but but it certainly is a way that that someone like that in the order can can come to some sense of okay, this is my practice, this is my karma, this is what I have to work with, rather than it being fatalistic and some kind of predetermination. Rather, this is what I what I need to work with, having having done everything one could with the medical people and keep doing that. Right? So that works for me. Okay. But when you when you take on animals, going back to that, you take on you take on complexity, and inevitably that complexity leads to ambiguity around death. Mm-hmm. It's just just the nature of it. Yeah. I know if like kind of a similar scale to the cricket thing, I for the first time grew like my own had a little like vegetable garden on my windowsill last summer and. Yeah, I just realized certain things I was growing was ending up with like little eggs on it or little aphids on it. And then it became this like tedious thing of like <laughs> off those little bits of the leaf. And because I just, for me, I, I, like, I just felt like if I was going to be just look past it, I, it affected me. So I, so I did what I did. And I just decided, well, if I'm going to grow anything this year, I'm going to grow those things that were, yeah, that were collecting fruits or whatever. And, so the absolute person would say, well, no, you know, if we did that, the whole world would starve. But that's not the question. It's a personal choice. And you have the, you have the good comfort to make those very subtle distinctions. Someone else who's starving in a Syrian refugee camp doesn't, you know, doesn't have the luxury of those kinds of distinctions, and you can't blame them. So someone, you know, in a, in a, in a destitute camp kills a rat and eats it. Right, which is not unheard of. I'm not going to condemn no bad karma. <laughs> I'm rather going to have compassion for their their predicament. Right? Yeah, yeah, like an Inuit community that depends on fish or something. Yeah, who am I to judge? Yeah. Who am I to judge? I don't know how it works. Yeah, I guess I, when I read um, whoever it is in Sutra, the Buddha really clearly says, you know, that's not the road you want to go in terms of trying to explain things according to karma or figure some of the karma out mm-hmm. and just don't yeah. yeah. So that really... Because uh, you, I'm, I'm you just get... You get lost in positions rather than reusing the teaching in this reflective way. And it's typical of religion. We just go into dogma. 
doctrine and lose all point of any of the arguments. And so we have that, you know, in the chanting we have that, I'm the heir to my kamma, born in my kamma, related to my kamma, whatever I will do for good or feel that, I am the heir. That's quite all-encompassing. Born in my kamma, heir to my kamma, abide supported by my kamma. You know, it's really, really all-encompassing. So you kind of get a sense of, be careful. These things, you know, maybe you don't understand. Have you read that journal between Ajahn Sajito and Nick Scott through India? Seeing way? No. That's a classic. And then the second one was? Great Yeah. Have I read that? Good He's an Ireland. He's always inviting me. Uh, Nick, you go, Nick. Didn't you go to Latvia with him? Yeah, I went to Latvia with him, right. It's a, it's a great read. That was when they went, you know, through India and on, on alms round. Crazy. And also that uh, trek they he and uh, Ajahn Amaro did through England. Through England. He did one through the Pyrenees with Ajahn Samedo. We did one from Cumbria to Newcastle. He's taken... A, we, I did a couple 10-day ones in New Zealand with him. He's a great naturalist. Yeah, he's a, he's a plant ecologist, he calls himself. He's got a doctorate from Newcastle. It's great where he talks about when they were going through southern Nepal in the rhino country and <laughs> didn't really determine to be rhino or not real dangerous rhinos can be. And then getting robbed. Yeah. I take it he likes a strong cup of tea. Right. <laughs> When he graduated, he got a, a job with a nature conservation outfit that was given open-cast coal mines by the coal board along the coast of Northumberland. And his job was to... They're, you know, they're like 20 acres that size, maybe. And his job, maybe, his job was to convert them into nature reserves. So he, you know, bring in diggers and make ponds and uh, do planting for different species of birds and so on. Beautiful job. Really lovely. The thing that I'm noticing with many people, the air in their ways, is for me, doctrinally, it would be around the third foundation of mindfulness, jitanupassana, mindfulness of the mood of the mind. And I think the common mistake many people make is getting caught up in the mood and then reacting to the mood and trying to do a practice not to have the mood. I think that's very, very common. And to actually get to that point where you understand how to know the mood as a mood and not follow that reactivity of thought or analysis or doing a practice and actually know the mood as a mood seems to be a, I suppose a difficult step, a tricky step for people to understand. It's very common. So the intention's good, but what I find when I talk to people quite often, look I was in, the other night I was talking about someone I'd met a few months ago, and that person was a good example. They're very diligent, very determined, but also very caught up in a kind of obsessive way with whatever 
mood there is and notice it and then they're on their case right away oh, I've got to do a practice oh, there I am. I'm caught up again and they never really make conscious the mood of the mind so then they pick up a practice and try to hold their mind to that practice and then the other thing takes them away again and they're just in a kind of reactive mode and never, never stopping and saying okay what is this thing what is this mood and just waiting for it to come up and becoming comfortable with just knowing the mood of the mind and not having to do something about it, fix it, analyze it, do something else. And I think if that if that's not established, then it's like Lompa has been saying in these in these talks, it's always me doing something to get somewhere. And it's hidden, you don't see that. And as long as that's there, I don't think there's real mindfulness. It's still it's still conjoined with what we call Sakai Ditti, self-view. Whereas if, like let's say I'm planning a trip to Thailand and I, I find myself thinking about the trip to Thailand and maybe maybe I'm worried, I'm not, but let's say I'm really worried about something in Thailand and that worry comes up and I worry about it and then I just notice the thoughts and I say, okay, worry, What's, what is it? Where is it? And I wait. Then I establish mindfulness. Then if I pick up a practice... To stay mindful, fine. It's not. It's not a, a reaction to the habit, right? I don't. I don't go to the breath in order to get rid of the mood. I just go to the breath to stay in the present moment. Maybe, maybe notice the mood in the breath. It seems that people, a lot of people, are, are kind of. It's that reactivity that one has to, put, you know, really contemplate and look at. Is the mood not a fabrication? <clears throat> Is the mood what? A fabrication. Well, it yeah, it's constructed, but it's not necessarily, it's not wrong, just like your knee is a fabrication, right? It's, it's made up of components, so the, the mental continuum that you experience is a fabrication, right? And it can be... Like you, know, like you say, you, you wake up in the morning, you're really careful of the mood, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You're really careful that you work it through. But you're very aware of it rather than just not being aware of it, say. Right? You're really conscious of it. So that fabrication is just nature. Like it's the fabrication through the dream states or the fabrication through memory or whatever. So it, it's just a question of not, not grasping the fabrication. So when there's the reactivity, there's a grasping of it, first of all, through thought. And then there's a rejection of it through the reaction. So at no time is there any awareness, oh, this is the way it is now, that sense of presence. So memories are, you know, they're fabulous for creating moods, aren't they? Just just wonderful what they can create out of, out of nothing. <laughs> is that what you were getting to? Or? Well, I was reading a little bit about sort of the 16 steps and sort of doing the meditation and sort of when you get into that point where you're sort of meditating on the fabrications and sort of how those fabrications affect your mind and your, I guess, your mood as opposed to your emotions and your feelings and your body awareness, say, where you're actually sort of contemplating. I guess, and I guess maybe it's the definition of mood as opposed to emotion. And it's just like it seems to me, yes, your dream state or that subconscious or whatever that is creating that mood that you become aware of it. But you're also, if you were in the meditative state and you were actually playing with those fabrications to actually say, well, okay, I am now going to set my mood for the day and that's going to be 
you know, it's like I'm going to give pleasure to my body or, or that, um, you know, to my feelings. If you were to actually sort of set a tone or a mood that you could actually reflect or contemplate on that. You could have metta, metta bhavana is that. Yeah. Then, then it's quite, it's a, it's a skillful means to create balance, so like gratitude. And, and it's, it's again, it's, it's rather like reflections on karma, they're skillful means. For what end? And, and the end is non-grasping, where you get to that, that which is always there and not the movement. So if I realize that my, my mind is, uh, I wake up and my mind is very cynical or something like that, and, and then I, and I actually notice that, right? Oh, yeah, cynicism feels this way. And then I, and I see it just wants to go that way. So I think I'll pick up some gratitude. Then you're quite mindful. But what I'm, I'm kind of indicating is like, oh, it's so cynical, I shouldn't be cynical, I should do more gratitude. That self-view is what I'm concerned about. Yeah. But if you're fully aware, oh man, the mind, like if I'm really sort of cynical about, or critical about one of the monks or something like that, and I just see my mind wants to go there all the time, I say, oh, yeah, this is really critical, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so can I bring up another perception? Oh yeah, it's keeping the Vinaya. Or, and that's all done in mindfulness. The other is this kind of judgment. shouldn't be that way. And not really being aware that I'm trying to get rid of it. Vibhavatanha. So I guess I'm look, I'm, what I'm talking about is more the, the, where the reactivity comes from the desire to get rid of. If you look you know, from, the, from the Four Noble Truths. Vibhavatanha. So if you had something like doubt, yeah. and you're reflecting on it, it's not a matter of, I'm not going to doubt. Exactly. It's just like, okay, I've got some doubt here, and I'm going to... Yeah, you can, you can choose to pick it up or not. And whatever you do, if, you, if, you do, if you're quite present to it, you'll see what the result of picking it up is, or the result of not picking it up. So maybe we, you know, we have a question on karma, and your mind brings up a question, what the karma said, don't know. And you go to not knowing. Or you pick it up and you think, well... Maybe that's the consequence of this, and you can see, is that a skillful result or not? But you're doing it in, in like, it's all out in the open. It's not just a reactivity to things. Yeah, we have, I mean, we have a gift to be able to do this. I mean, to, to be able to so subtly look at the workings of the mind, and because and, usually you just got to survive in life. <laughs> kind of get on with it. So really. And I think the loves and hates and the suffering that we experience quite often are, are, are they're not really in proportion to who we are here. You know, you get annoyed at someone and, or afraid of someone. It's so much bigger than really what's going on. But that's good, because then, then, then you can see, actually, this is just a creation of the mind. It's not really the social situation. So it's quite, it's quite useful that way. And one of the monks used to say, he said, yeah, 90% of my problems in my is caused by the guy that sits next to me. There's <laughs> something there. Because I don't remember exactly what you may have mentioned before on this topic, would you be able to uh, touch on the subject of beauty and how that is? In- beauty, yeah. yeah. Well, there's beauty which is there's sense experience which we consume. So like, like say something, like if you read a, a really 
riveting novel or something and you really kind of consume it then you'll find that actually once you finish it you want another one so that's more in line with kamatanha craving for uh, absorbing sense experience and so you kind of finish the novel and then where's the next page and so then you have the, the discomfort of not having something that you can absorb into so then because you don't have something to absorb into you so that's kamatanha Right? So you can say there's a certain beauty in, in the author's writings, but the way you're relating to it is, is more consuming and, and being absorbed and losing yourself in it, which is great fun until it ends. And then the other, when, when it ends, rather than be with the um, discomfort of not being absorbed into a sense experience, that's uncomfortable, so you seek another one. But there are, there are experiences of beauty which bring the mind to a sense of, of stillness. And I think we all, like in, in Ontario, we notice it with Pike Lake, or maybe with a sunrise, or with a kind of star dome sky, or those experiences where we, we can't, we don't absorb into them in, in a kind of consuming them and eating them up, as it were. It's more like they, they stop the mind. They, they bring the mind to a sense of, wow. Right? And if we can just appreciate that and not get lost in the idea, okay, I'll build, I'll build a kuti here, or I want to be here forever, or I'm afraid of going back to my own home because I won't have this. This is what we do. We attach to it very, very quickly, but we allow that, that surprise that comes from natural beauty, we allow that surprise to take us, then it's, it takes us to the place which is actually not dependent on the beauty. It takes us to the place of silence. So the beauty is actually pointing back to that your real home, which is awareness. And it happens to all of us in a kind of... Your mind just stops. You come out to Pike Lake when, when Pike Lake just had the ice that one day and didn't have any snow. You know, the mind is, oh. And you don't really want to own it or go swimming in it or consume it or build a cottage on it. <laughs> but your, your mind does kind of stop. And that, to me, is the... There's something about beauty that can, can bring the mind to a sense of stillness. If you appreciate it, if you appreciate it. And art can do that. We don't... We don't music or, or, or things like that. Well, and Theravada Buddhism is probably the most austere... Of, of kind of like monasticism is quite austere in terms of the arts so there's not really much there <laughs> but it, 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 it can also then be a kind of dogmatic rejection of beauty anything beauty is beautiful is bad which is a kind of Puritan attitude right but that, that's not necessarily the case so for me when when imagery or sound draws my attention into it, that's kind of kamatanha, or in some sense idolatry, I idolize the thing in, a, in that kind of symbolic way. But when the thing points back to my awareness and reminds me of the silence of the mind, then it's symbology in that sense, that it's a symbol of or a, or a reference back to the, my own purity of the heart, purity of presence. And like when we try to build a, a meditation hall, we really try to make it really silent and 
when we built that hall in New Zealand, I told the architect, I said, can you make it a jaw dropper? <laughs> so you're going, oh. and that, that effect, right? If you see a Buddha image, I mean, that's the effect of, of all, I suppose. You know, that, that word has become trivialized now. You know, every kid says it's, you know, they, they see Justin Bieber awesome. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's lost its whole kind of religious meaning, but you know, since all, oh, what is that? And I think for us meditators, we see it with like a big sky, stars, oceans. I think I think space seems to do it for us. You know, big open spaces where there isn't like stuff to process. You know, we're kind of there's a lot of like cities don't usually do that. Mm-hmm. Cities kind of keep you. Cities can be very interesting if you don't have to live there too long. <laughs> so they can be kind of culturally fascinating. Well, people actually do this. But they, they don't they don't bring the sense of all. Oh, but then you might go into a museum and see you know some some piece of sculpture and oh, your mind your mind can touch that silence. Yeah. I think I like resonate with what you say. I have also heard this could still maybe incorporate what you've said to some degree, but I've also heard uh, kind of the take that there's in these situations like when you see the vastness of the sky or the vastness of the ocean or, or a mountain that that it should perhaps also invoke a sense of samwega uh, because you realize how kind of microscopic and fragile your own existence is in this vast expanse or in comparison to that's corporeal existence. What is that? The body. But awareness is vast. Right. So Sanvega is about grasping the khandhas, and the khandhas are very limited. And the trouble with that is that it's a constant put-down of expansiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just this little freaky thing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the ocean is so vast, and I'm just a little... Cricket, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Whereas the awareness is vast, yeah. So, some, to me, Sanveg, you know, it, it, it is about grasping the. The thing about Theravad, for me, is important is that there's the condition and the unconditioned. And some of these words, if we don't bring in the unconditioned, they're just, they're, they're actually just constantly pointing, well, the unconditioned is limited, that's all. But if we only have that, we have a very depressing religion, because uh, it's only about, whereas actually it's a very uplifting teaching that there is the unconditioned, there's a vastness of the unconditioned, <laughs> right? So if I'm already a guy that puts myself down, well, let's see if my nature is to say I'm, I'm nothing, you know. <laughs> and then I use that language of Sanvega. Yeah, it's so vast, and I'm just... I mean, that's just depressing, right? If I'm all bloated, then a bit of sunbaker might be helpful. <laughs> right? So it kind of... It really, really... But you need... To me, it seems you need both, don't you? You need the condition and the unconditioned to really understand why the Buddha was so adamant about the uh, sankaras being not where it's at. Not... It's, it, because otherwise it just seems like a a very nihilistic, depressing philosophy. But he's just pointing, don't look, don't look there. That's conditioned. 
He's not saying conditions are wrong or bad, right. per se, right? right? And then that, that leads to the opening and the letting go. So then beauty can bring you to that. But having said that, you might then very get very attached to that and then be, have difficulty going back to work, back to Bell, <laughs> or, or you know, to the city or, or your family or whatever. And then, then you've, not, you've missed the point. You know, you've attached to the space and the beauty and the color and the wind and all of that. And you realize it was just pointing to a silence that's always there, very helpful. Brian? Agha Puja is coming up. Yeah. Can you clarify? I've read two different figures. How many arahants showed up in that country? <laughs> I've read 3,000, I've read 1,250. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> 1,250, I suppose. I can't remember. But sir, no, actually, the, 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 the significance of the. The suttas have stock numbers. Yeah. Right? So 500 is. Commonly, there are 500 cards, 500 monks, and 500 lizards, or whatever. So they have kind of stock phrases. But the real, the significance for us as a Sangha, it was when the Ovada Patimoka was chanted, which is the first recitation of our, our monastic discipline. So we, we call it Sangha Day. So we have Vesak and May. Fumuna May is Buddha Day. This is, I don't know if Thais do that, it's more like a Western thing, Buddha Day. And then Asala Puja, full moon of July, is Dharma Day, the first teaching. And then full moon of February is Sangha Day, which is the coming together of the Sangha. So that's the way we, the strange kind of story there is, is this sort of symbology for us, is this is when the order kind of comes together and realizes we are in order now. We're not just individuals. Not that it was like that, but that's that's the kind of for us the import of it. Big day in Thailand. Nagapuja is a big day. Here it's not. In Sri Lanka it's not a big day. It's not one of their big celebrations. They have others that the Thais don't have. So in Sri Lanka, each full moon has a a particular significance. So one of their full moons is when the Bikuni order. I think December is uh, Unduvapoya, is it? Sorry. Maybe in July, almost. Okay, so Sri Lanka has different, but but the Asala Puja in July, the Dhammachaka Sutta, that's universal in Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and um, Vesak, full moon of May, that's universal. And then this Maga Puja is more something that the Thais. I don't quite know the history, how that, how that came about. And then in, in the Wapapong monasteries, what happens is um, post the day, so on that day a lot of people would come to take the precepts, practice all day at the monastery, listen to a Dhamma talk probably after the meal, and then in the Wapapong tradition they'd have a, a evening puja, they might do a circumambulation around the main shrine, I don't know if they still do that. When I was when I was at Wapapong, I mean, we did a we did a circumambulation Magapucha. I think I counted like a thousand people. You know, just beautiful, really lovely because it's the weather's really nice. Full moon. Everyone has a candle, incense, flowers. You walk around the main street. It takes a long time. A lot of people. But really, really communal, lovely. And then they do a, a, an all night sitting. And the next morning, there's a big pindapad. So it's, a, it's one of the great kind of communal gatherings in, in, a, 
in Buddhist culture in Thailand. For us, it's people don't really. It's just a quiet, quiet day for us. I think we have at times done a circumambulation outside, on Manga Puja. Depends if it's minus twenty-nine or <laughs> minus five. <laughs> Those are difficult for the abbot to pull off. Let's do circumambulation. It's <laughs> <laughs> like dragging the kids around. <laughs> when you have a Buddhist culture, then you have all these lovely celebrations and times of coming together where different types of people join in, because a lot of people are not meditators. So they'll, they'll come and they'll just join in the celebration. And... Uh, our kids come, so you have a way of, of bringing in larger parts of the society. Whereas when in the West we have like meditation groups, and it's fairly, you know, it's like you, you sit together and you meditate, and it's good, but all this other possibility, cultural coming together, is, doesn't exist. So that's the, uh, the goodness of having a, a tradition. Downside is that, that there can be a lot of ritual and not real deeper contemplation. So the Wapapong tradition is one where Lumpacha didn't want to get rid of the, the rituals. He said, no, we need to use them. I don't know if he said that, but that was you know, being, being integrated and decided and, and, and using the rituals in a way which was always meaningful, rather than just become a kind of iconoclastic, uh, pure, we only meditate kind of mindset. So it has, it has a lot of beauty in it. I, like here, we don't see a lot of people, some people we don't see very often, and we have a big celebration, and we have people who haven't seen for a year. And, and it's really nice, actually. Okay, all right. Shall we cash in our chips? <laughs> Sa <laughs> 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 <laughs>